like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animals, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Carol Buckley, a longtime expert in the care of captive elephants, co-founder of the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee. Buckley went on to found Elephant Aid International, a nonprofit organization that creates innovative approaches to the care and management of captive elephants. Buckley also created Elephant Refuge North America, an 850-acre sanctuary located in Atapulgas, Georgia, not far, really, from Tallahassee. In late September, the refuge welcomed its first elephant resident, Bo, a retired circus performer who had been a star attraction for the better part of three decades at the Cardin Circus. We'll find out about Elephant Aid International, Elephant Refuge North America, Bo, whether there are additional elephant residents on the horizon there, and more when I speak with Carol Buckley in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll speak briefly with Julie Inman, a facility manager at the Rigsby Recreation Center in Safety Harbor, who will give us the lowdown on Barktoberfest, a Halloween event for dogs and their people happening in Safety Harbor this Saturday, October 23rd. Right now, though, let's discuss elephants with Carol Buckley with the reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Carol Buckley back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals today. Oh, my pleasure. So I'm really uh, pleased to speak with you again, and it's certainly been far too many years since the last time. And I'm eager, of course, to discuss Elephant Aid International, the Elephant Refuge, North America, Bo, and other topics. But first, I was thinking in the last couple of days, you've devoted much of your life to caring for captive elephants, to making their lives better. What is it about elephants that stole your heart and obviously keeps stealing it? Well, that's a very good question, and I'm not sure that there are words to explain it. But um, I met a baby elephant while I was enrolled in my first year uh, in exotic animal training school in Southern California. And when I met that elephant, uh, she was less than a year old, and she just um, sparked my attention, sparked my interest, and caught my attention uh, because she was so incredibly aware and smart. And uh, I think that's what's just kept me involved with elephants for the last four Forty-seven years is they are highly evolved. They're beyond intelligence. They are highly intelligent, but they're incredibly evolved and they're very self-aware and they're very personable. They have their own personalities and they relate to everyone around them. And that doesn't mean just elephants, anyone that's in their life. So it can be a horse, a dog, it can be a person or it can be another elephant. And they form deep, very deep relationships with every individual that's in their life. So it sounds like in a way, since you said you had enrolled in this course to learn 
learned to work with exotic animals, that it was almost serendipitous, really, that along that path that early on that you did meet this baby elephant because who knows, it might have been a different animal that you had a direct uh, contact with through the class or otherwise that maybe you forged some kind of bond with. But it sounds like it was because of the singular nature of elephants and that maybe unusual opportunity so early on that kind of created the uh, the lifelong love affair that you had with them. Well, I, I really have always believed that my path was guided and, you know, wh- however that happened. I was 19 when I met this elephant. Yeah. And it... You know, it, 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 it was serendipitous. It was, it, I was sitting in my rental house doing homework and a baby elephant was being walked down my street. I mean, how often does that happen? Yeah, and unusual. I, I raced out there and was all excited about seeing this cute little elephant. And he said, hey, come by. You can feed her. She, she's still on a bottle. You can feed her and see her anytime. And she happened to just be on display one block down the road. So... You know, I just I just believe that there there's a higher power out there that, you know, helps us along if you just listen and are, are open, you know, to it. And so I, I went over there with a tire store that she was on exhibit at. And I went over there. And um, since that day, I had not been separated from her and until, of course, you know, the, the issue when I left the sanctuary in Tennessee. So yeah. we spent every single day together. Well, I want to get into that in a sec, uh, just because I think there's some, some recent news. But I'm wondering, like, to what extent that your relationship with, this is Tara who we're talking about, correct? Correct. Yeah. And I'm wondering how your relationship with her shaped your thinking about captive elephants and, and especially how they should be cared for, how they should be helped to heal from whatever trauma that they've experienced, just because in most cases, just by, by virtue of being captive, there's good chance there's some or considerable trauma involved in their story. Well, you know, Tara really has been my mentor from the very beginning. So when I met her, I knew absolutely nothing about elephants. So she is my teacher. And um, and through the days, weeks, months, and years, the only reason I learned anything about elephants was because of Tara. And so I had the outside influence of individuals who had elephants or facilities that exhibited elephants. And they had their perspective and they had their way of operating. And then I had Tara who was showing me something completely different. And so after just a few years, you know, I really became the person who rejected everything that was expected, you know, traditional, the traditional way that you keep, uh, you know, a wild captive elephant. Um, And I rejected it, not because I thought I knew more or that I was better than anyone else. It's because Tara was showing me, you know what, that doesn't work for me. That's not in my best interest. Mm. That's not what makes me contented and feeling safe. So I remember, you know, three years with Tara, I'm like, I know a lot. And then five years with Tara, I know, oh, I know a lot. And then eight, nine, ten years, I'm like, I know nothing. (laughs) I really know nothing. (laughs) And it was about, well, when Tara was probably eight or nine, that I started um, having exposure to other elephants, so circus elephants and zoo elephants. And, you know, they, they were individuals in their own right, and they had things to teach me as well, which was, you know, in addition to what Tara was teaching me. And then for the last decade, I've been in Asia uh, helping elephants in India, Nepal, and Thailand. And that has just been the most amazing education for me to further understand, you know, this wild species 
that we're keeping in captivity. And so Tara continues to be my mentor. She continues to be the one that I follow and, and learn from. But it's because of her that, that I've been exposed to hundreds of other elephants that have brought me to my conclusion and my perspective and my sense of every one of these elephants, I don't care if they're captive born, they're all scientifically, biologically, they're wild. So the fact that they can survive in captivity under our care, under the restrictions that exist for, for this species, is that, that's just amazing. It yeah. just shows, you know, how, how evolved they are. Uh, and, and I can't find another word that expresses that. But some suffer more than others, of course, yeah. just like people. So you can have two that are in the same situation, experiencing the same uh, things, the same deprivation, and one will do okay, and the other will suffer greatly and become depressed or aggressive and develop post-traumatic stress disorder and so it really is, you know, up to the individual. But one of the things that I'm seeing very clearly from around the world, so, you know, here in the U.S. And, and also in Asia, is the one thing that will help to ensure that the elephant will stay emotionally healthy, psychologically healthy, is the family arrangement. Is this elephant really loved? No matter what it looks like, no matter what the situation looks like uh, to us, because we can look at any situation with an elephant and go, oh, God, that's horrible. The poor thing is abused. But what we project onto the elephant is not necessarily what that elephant is experiencing herself or himself. So what I've, one of the things I've learned is they need to feel loved just like we do. They need to feel safe, however that is conveyed to them, if that means that with a bunch of other elephants or if they haven't been raised with elephants, they may be afraid of other elephants, so they have people and dogs and horses and goats. Whatever it takes to make them feel safe, if they have that through their formative years, those elephants remain psychologically healthy and emotionally healthy. But it's the ones who were deprived of that family mm, feeling of, of love, protection, and respect, and uh, admiration, all of those things that an elephant gets from their natural herd. If they get it in captivity, they'll be healthier. Um, ultimately, elephants should live in the wild. There's yeah. no question about it. No question about it. But oh. if we're keeping them in captivity, I think we need to look at what are their needs, not our needs. What are their needs and what's going to help them to live a full, um, healthy life and, and, they, and that they remain psychologically and emotionally healthy? And Carol, does each elephant sort of case by case uh, tell you that or show you that in the way that Tara early on and for many years showed you specifically uh, the right path or what to do? Um, is that what you found in over these all these many many years with all kinds of elephants that you've cared for? It it is so incredibly consistent with elephants, is they can be light years different from each other, but they are every one of them an open book. If you want to know how they feel, 
and what's going on with them and what they want. If, if you're open and receptive to getting that from their body language and their language and all of that, you get it. It's, they're just an open book. They don't hide anything. They don't pretend. They don't lie. <laughs> they're very, very open. So for me, the goal is to get myself out of the way. So to get my concern, like, oh, the poor thing is chained and, you know, must be feeling abused. Yes, that's reasonable. But put that to the side and let the elephant show you how they feel. And again, no elephant wants to be on a chain. That's ridiculous. Of course, an elephant doesn't want to be on a chain. But the goal is to look at each individual and let them tell you what's going on with them. Now, you know, in Tennessee, I rescued 24 elephants. And each one just <laughs> blew my mind. And, you know, they were just so open and willing to show who they are, what they need. And, and some of them are, I need you to not come near me. I don't trust people. Don't come near me. And that's fine. And you say, okay, no problem. I'm going to support you in any way that you need. And if you need people to stay away, that's what's going to happen for you. Um, so, you know, I've been really lucky, really fortunate. When I go over to Asia, I do not approach any elephant except to trim their feet. My goal is to not form a relationship with those elephants because I'm not going to be there in their family. I'm yeah. going to come and I'm going to go. So, but even with those elephants, they're, they're in horrific situations, the worst situations that you could ever imagine for a captive elephant. And they, all of them, will be very open and clear on how they're feeling, how their life could be made better. And there's something about, mm, there's something about, that they don't resign themselves to their existence, but they don't um, feel sorry for themselves. Hmm. You know, that's something we do. They, yeah. they don't do that. Interesting. Well, gosh, uh, there, there's so many things I want to get to with you, and I want to make sure we have enough time. But uh, I think a lot of people know the, the early Tara story. But I think uh, just because there's fairly timely information. So let's talk just a, a briefly, at least, about the custody situation regarding Tara, who, again, as you noted, was your kind of elephant, I guess the first elephant really at the elephant sanctuary in Tennessee. And then things happened, and then you left there, and it wasn't a great situation, and T Tara stayed. But I understand there's been a just a very recent um, legal ruling that kind of decided that custody. So does that mean that Tara then might, uh, we're jumping ahead a little bit to something we haven't even talked about, but we will, which is you have a, a new sanctuary that I mentioned just in the introduction, uh, just in Georgia, not too far from Tallahassee. Will, will Tara go there, or will she stay at the Elephant Sanctuary, or is that still being sorted out? No, it, it was already sorted out. It was about five years ago when I uh, was um, allowed to come and see Tara for the first time in five years. Uh, the sanctuary had blocked me for coming to see her because of their internal policies on visitation and um, physical contact with elephants, mm -hmm. uh, which they don't allow. Um, and so it, the courts ordered the sanctuary to allow me to come and to just observe Tara and, and to see what kind of condition she was in. And I went there fully believing, fully believing that Tara was fine. I created that place. I created the place in Tennessee. It, it, it you know, was uh, my dream, manifestation of my dream for Tara. Yeah. And so I never imagined it wouldn't be anything but perfect though. Uh, when I got there, what I found was a, almost a catatonic elephant, which Tara is not. Hmm. 
Tara is precocious and outgoing and playful and talkative and goofy, all of those things. And this elephant standing in front of me was not. And when I was finally able to just like get her out of her stupor, that she even noticed that there was any stimuli around, she reached out to me and I went to step up to the corral and I was prevented. I was told I was not allowed to walk up to her. Therefore, Tara reaches out to me. I don't respond to her. That was so cruel. I I just said, I am never doing that to her again. Um, I will wait until the courts, you know, deem that I can take her from there. And so that's been another five years. And I, I felt it was best for her that that was traumatic. It was it was horrible yeah. because what elephants do when they greet each other, they greet with their trunk and they touch each other and they talk and they hug. and they. But that was against uh, the sanctuary policy. So um, that is one of the reasons that Tara is moving. But the other more greater, you know, more important reasons are Tara is currently living with one other elephant with no option of other elephants. Her family that she um, grew with, you know, there at the sanctuary, they, they've all died or have been euthanized and there's only one left and I don't think people realize that they think that at the at the sanctuary all the elephants are living together and they're not it's Tara and one other elephant okay so and that other elephant is wonderful her name is Sissy she's lovely um, but Tara needs an opportunity to be around other elephants and in addition to that is Tennessee I chose the location and as I said Tara has been my mentor and my teacher all along yeah. I chose that location for a 21 year old elephant and it was perfect for a 21 year old elephant But as elephants age, they develop arthritis and cold weather is really difficult for them. So Tennessee turns out to not be the perfect place because the winters are too cold. Mm. So when I was looking for land for a new sanctuary, I found this location, which is 10 degrees warmer in the wintertime, which makes all the difference. Elephants can be outside nearly all the time, which means they're out and about moving as they should because they're migratory by nature. They walk 30 to 50 miles every day naturally. Their body was designed to do that. If they're standing in a warm barn, standing in one place, that is very detrimental for them physically and, and mentally. But so that's the reason Tara is moving for her welfare. It's better weather. The land is conducive to her moving around all the time. Bo the elephant is already here and they are a perfect, perfect pair of elephants to just bond immediately. He's 10 years younger than her, which she's never had in a sanctuary setting. She has always been the youngest elephant and all the older ones came in and they were lame or something. Thing, and they they just didn't wander around with her. She would go off on her own. But Bo Bo is younger than her, and he'll keep her active. And then there's four more elephants that will be coming very soon. Hopefully, um, they've been promised to us as well. So she's going to have another family that um, you know that she can bond with and and make friends with and and learn the land and just have more elephant adventures. Yeah. Well, I want to move on. Like I say, I have many other things to talk about. But as you might imagine, as I'm sure you know directly, just even when I was kind of posting about you being on the show. And I guess maybe because some tar news was breaking or relatively recent. And even this just this morning with some of the emails and texts I've gotten, uh, it does seem like kind of a tricky, polarizing situation. I mean, I understand what you're saying, that she's just there with one elephant. It's, the circumstances isn't great for what's now an older elephant. And it sounds like even though there's only one other elephant where she's going, Bo, who we'll talk about, it sounds like some more are on the horizon. But it does seem like it's kind of a complicated situation where she's been there for, I guess, what, 25 some odd years with elephant friends of one kind or another, some, as you say, unfortunately have died. So I, I think people have some strong feelings that are elephant people about this being sort of a mixed bag of, of opportunities and, and losses for her. Do you have anything? To- well, you know, 
it's it's interesting that that you call them elephant people because they're not elephant people. Okay. These are people who um, who care about elephants and and they and they like elephants and they don't want elephants to be in an abusive situation. Uh, and and they think that Tara will not be happy to be moved. Um, and they're wrong. But you know that's their opinion. Right. But it's an un, uneducated opinion. The elephant people. I I've gotten so many emails and comments on Facebook going finally. Finally, finally, because elephant people recognize that the most important thing for a captive-held elephant is the relationship that they create with others. And everybody who knows about Tara and has seen Tara, seen me with Tara, knows that the strongest relationship in Tara's life is with me. And I didn't ask for that. I am honored to have it, and I don't want it to be exclusively her and me. No way. But that was taken from her. And what that tells me is that those those who were responsible for making the decision did not recognize how important emotional bonds are for elephants. Because if they did recognize it, they would have immediately made some arrangement for me to be coming in and spending some time so that Tara would have time with that person or that being that she was most bonded. So I don't want people to think that Tara's being moved to be with me. No, Tara's being moved so that her options are increased again. I created a sanctuary for her originally to increase all her options in her life. So she likes dogs. So there were lots of dogs at the sanctuary. She likes people. So there were people, at, you know, yeah. caregivers at the sanctuary. And she needed to learn to like elephants as well. And that's been harder for her. But now there are no dogs at the sanctuary. She has no opportunity to bond with the species that she's most comfortable with. And the caregivers are not allowed by policy to have a physical relationship with her. So she is being deprived of those things that make her feel loved. That's her personally. And that's what this sanctuary in Georgia is going to give her. All of those things that I know feed her and make her feel loved and safe. So there's already a dog here that's laying with Bo. Tara's going to be so excited about that. More elephants are going to come. More dogs will come. And she'll have her caregivers. So once again in her life, she will have as much as I can possibly give her, you know, since she's deprived of living in the wild. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that we have so many other things to cover that I think that for now has to be our final word on that. But this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Carol Buckley, a longtime expert in the care of captive elephants, a co-founder of the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee. She went on to found Elephant Aid International and also created Elephant Refuge North America Sanctuary in Georgia that just welcomed its first elephant resident, Bo. If you'd like to ask Carol a question about her more recent Ventures or about Bo, please call 813 239 9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813 433 0885. So, you made a couple of references to spending a fair amount of time in Asia, which might bring us somewhat to after the first conversation we had Elephant Aid International. What prompted you to create it and how would you characterize its mission? Well, um, when I left the sanctuary in 2010, uh, I, I didn't leave in my drive to help elephants. So, what I did is I decided to go to Asia and go, I was going to go specifically to three countries, India, Nepal, and Thailand, because I had, uh, I knew colleagues that worked there. And I actually went just to see what was going on in Asia. And if there was any, any way, anything that that I could do to be of assistance in any of the situations. And so I was blown away because the situation for elephants there is just horrific. And uh, you could send, you know, a thousand people over there skilled in elephant care and it still wouldn't be enough. 
to, you know, to help all the elephants that need help. So um, what I decided to do was to focus on um, those skills that I had that I knew I could do in my sleep, you know, so foot trimming and training elephants through positive reinforcement, which is, you know, as opposed to dominance, and thirdly, creating sanctuary. So I've spent the last decade more months there, you know, in Asia than here, uh, and we built chain-free corrals. In Nepal, we built 63 one-acre chain-free corrals that are solar-powered in Chitwan National Park for all the government-owned elephants that are otherwise kept on chains and used for anti-poaching patrol. I mean, they're very valuable to the government. So that was the, the, a first in, in Nepal and really in Asia, that, that whole setup. And can you and just, then, uh, sorry to interrupt, but just because I think it's kind of self-evident in some ways and some people, again, listening, probably know a lot more about chaining elephants than maybe others. So can you just talk about what that really meant and the implications of chain-free areas or, or, or corrals, what, what that really meant sure. for, for the elephant in question? Sure. So in Nepal, what they do is the way that they contain an elephant, they don't put it in a in a yard or you know in a it, it, they, they they contain it with chain excuse me yeah. they, so they put a chain around each front ankle and they chain those two ankles together and then with a very short chain they chain them to the ground so the elephant virtually can not move around yeah and they do this uh, in this style uh, for lots of reasons but mostly they don't want to see the elephants engaged in stereotypic behavior which is the bobbing and weaving, or what people call dancing, which is not dancing. Mm. It's a stereotypic behavior, which is the coping mechanism that elephants have when they're under stress and they have no way to change the situation or get rid of the stress. So that's their coping mechanism, that bobbing and swaying. So all the elephants in Nepal are kept this way. And then, um, of course, all about that is not good. You know, young elephants growing, um, they grow 10 inches in height every year, which means they grow rapidly. And if their front legs are chained together, that means that the structure of their front legs, the bone, the tendon, the muscles, it's all informing wrong and can cripple them as they age. It's just a bad situation. Uh, So what we did is we came in with a very simple electric fence uh, like they use for cattle and horses. So we call hot wire, hot wire fencing. And there's uh, companies in India that do this all the time because they put it around buildings for security. So I hired the company to come in and use their technology, which is seven strands of this wire that goes up to eight foot. And it's put in the ground, in the ground or, or held together with T-posts. Most people know what a T-post is. And so you just map out this one acre and you drive the T-post and you hook up the wire. And then we used an energizer, the, the equipment that actually runs the fence is solar powered. So that was important in Nepal because they get maybe three or four hours of electricity every day. And so we needed something that could be powered by the sun. So what this did for elephants is when they were not out in Chitwan National Park doing their job, which is anti-poaching patrol, which is the good part of their life because they're actually in the national forest. They're walking on natural substrate. They're eating the natural vegetation and they're moving and walking. So all of that is good, right? But then when patrol was done, they were come back and put on chains. Now they were come, they would come back and they were released into these one acre corral. And this meant for them no chaining, no dominance by the Mahouts because the rule was you do not go into that corral and tell the elephant to do anything. This is her free time. This is when she just gets to be an elephant. And the other thing that was the benefit is now we could put elephants together, which they never do in Nepal. They keep every elephant separate. Mm-hmm. And so 
we could put mother and daughter together. We could put grandma and grandkids together. And it was just glorious to see how well it worked. Wow. That sounds like it was pretty revolutionary, really. Yeah, and simple. You know, such a simple, simple design and inexpensive as well. You know, it was real doable. So we did it for the government and then we did it for a couple of, we did it for Tiger Top, uh, which is a a, a private company, um, a resort. And they had, I think it was 12 elephants. So we did 15 acres of chain-free corral. And they had, in one corral, they had five elephants. In another corral, they had three. And, you know, and what they did because of this transition into a really a, a, a better welfare for elephants, they stopped doing elephant rides. They just stopped it completely, which is one of our goals in Nepal is to stop the elephant back safaris because it's, these are older elephants, not good for them, eh, done. You mm-hmm. know, riding an elephant, that, that day is over. We should know why it's not good for elephants. So um, that's one of our goals. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, just to make sure we don't run out of time, let's skip ahead back to good old North America and specifically the Elephant Refuge North America. So how long ago did you start thinking, hey, one day... I'm going to have another sanctuary for elephants. Well, honestly, it was five years ago when I realized that Tara needed to move. I knew that there was no place to move her to. And so I said, well, my life has been pretty free for the last five years, coming and going back to Asia, you know, scheduling my own time. And so I said, oh, I guess I'm going to, you know, have to buckle down here. And our organization started looking for the land. And uh, actually, it was more than five years ago, maybe six years ago. And so five years ago, we bought the land and, and we've been developing it ever since. Now, two years ago, we were promised the elephant that lives in Puerto Rico. Her name is Mundi. She's African. And unfortunately, the government has stalled out there. And they've got a zoo full of animals. Uh, the zoo is closed down. It, they've lost their USDA license. They lost it years ago. Uh, and so those animals are just there and nothing's happening for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were disappointed two years ago that Mundi was supposed to come. And now Bo arrived. And Bo was a bit of a surprise because I had been speaking to the owner about his four female elephants. And they're older. And Bo really wasn't part of the conversation because, uh, one, he's male. And two, he's 34 years old. Yeah. So he's in the prime of his life. He can make money for them for another 30 years. So, But I got a phone call and George said, I've decided, uh, you know, after looking at your facility and studying everything and knowing what kind of life Bo would have there, I'm going to retire him. And he says, you've got three weeks to get ready for him to come. Wow. <laughs> I was, whoa. <laughs> So there was a lot to do, no doubt, to prepare for a big male when you were otherwise thinking something entirely different, probably. Oh, we just, you know, we went from zero to 60 or zero to 160 overnight because you're right. He's a a bull. Now, luckily, he's castrated. So um, he's more docile, but I didn't know him in his adult life. I didn't know him personally, so I didn't know how docile he would be. He's still 10 and a half foot tall and weighs like 12,000 pounds. So, you know, he's a, he's a big, big boy. And all of our fencing was created for eight foot elephants, you know, female elephants. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we had to increase the height of the crowds inside the barn. Uh, the, the doorways are only 10 foot tall, so he ducks when he goes in. Oh, like, wow. You know, this is not created for him. And then we did uh, already have um, three different enclosures. So we have a seven-acre enclosure and a 100-acre enclosure, both connected to the barn. So elephants have, you know, free choice access in and out of the barn into those enclosures. And then we have another habitat that's 750. So what we did is I decided, well, since this has to happen so quickly, let's go ahead and reinforce the seven-acre habitat, which has its own pond and pasture and a lot of woods area and, and connected to the barn. So we 
we, we, you know, we've got, uh, what is it, uh, six-inch uh, uh, six thick wall steel pipe. So we, we reinforced the entire fencing with that, and then we put a steel top rail on it, and uh, we got that done the night before he arrived. Wow, that was a photo finish. And again, just, just for people who may or may not be picturing this, 10 feet tall, actually 10 feet, 6 inches tall, would be a little higher than a basketball hoop, like at any professional or any ran, you know, regulation court. So that that's how tall uh, Bo is. So so I keep getting kind of questions that circle around this summer, asking more directly, because Bo came from the Cardin Circus and, and the, the man you're referring to is George Cardin. Mm-hmm. So the, I guess the question that's come up a couple times uh, so far in one way or another already in these emails and texts is like, how do you feel about circuses and circus elements? Well, you know, I don't categorize it zoo, circus, sanctuary, privately owned. I look at how is that elephant being cared for. And unfortunately, you can have a really good, a place that has a good reputation that isn't taking good care of one of their elephants. So I don't judge circus and I don't judge zoo and I don't judge sanctuary. I judge how the elephant, the individual elephant is um, being cared for and if they're thriving in that situation. And I know what people want me to say. They want me to say circus is bad. And that's like, that's like, it's not personal to the elephant. You know, most elephants, and there are very few elephants that are traveling anymore, but there was a really, really bad situation, a circus situation for elephants, and that was Ringling Brothers Circus. Yeah. And it was because of how the elephants were cared for, managed, transported. Everything about their lives was not good for them. So for that particular circus, not good. Yeah. Not good. But it really is, it is more about the individual elephant um, and the owner than it is about the, the category of circus. So if I follow you, and correct me if I'm, if I'm missing the distinction here, so you're saying that there, there are some circuses that have elephants that actually could be good or not bad. Well, let me say it this way. When an elephant comes to sanctuary, or in our case, refuge, I look at them and I see, you know, how are they emotionally, psychologically, physically Behavioral-wise, how are they? And to how they are is a reflection of how they were cared for. Okay, so in Tennessee, we rescued circus and zoo elephants. Mm-hmm. And the elephants that were the most damaged were zoo elephants. And how so, and what were the, uh, the differences between the zoo elephants you're referring to and, say, the circus elephants that, that were also rescued at the uh, elephant sanctuary in Tennessee? So the zoo elephants, and I'm not going to say why, you know, I, I'm not going to judge why it happened. I'll say how they were. Mm-hmm. They were insecure, uh, many of them aggressive, uh, didn't trust the uh, their caregivers. Um, were obese, uh, poor feet, their nails were a mess. Psychologically, just seemed to not trust anything. And fear, you know, fear base is what makes elephants aggressive. Yeah. So um, in that case, if an elephant was seriously aggressive, you know, in the beginning, it was like she was afraid. And people would say, well, maybe she's afraid of the move. No, it's that elephants that came and did really well were our elephants who were well-adjusted, and that's because they had more life experience. Zoo elephants are put in a tiny yard, and that's their life for decades and decades and decades. They have no life experience, and many of them that we got were living alone. So, you know, they, they were a wreck when they came to us, and truly, you know, physically they were a wreck as well. So I'm not saying the circus industry is a good thing. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you need to judge each individual elephant and their care individually and not lump it into an 
an industry, just as zoos should not be lumped into an industry that all their elephants are in bad shape. That's not true either. I just know that the elephants that we got, most of the zoo elephants that we got were in really bad shape. And it sounds like if, if I follow your explanation there, that the zoo elephants, which may or may not be counterintuitive for some of us, were, were uh, exhibiting more signs of being fear-based in, their, in, in how they were handled and treated and, than the circus elephants that you rescued. Do I, do I have that correct? Yeah, you do. Okay. And I think yeah. uh, part of it is uh, in circus, in, in, a, in a good private ownership. So, you know, circus elephants are privately owned. So in a good private uh, ownership, the elephant is part of the family. So the elephant is very familiar with everything. The family, what goes on, how you do it, in and out of the trailer, doing the show, they're very familiar with it. In a zoo, the caregivers rotate. The, the family is not consistent. There may be one, you know, that the lead caregiver, the keeper that's there all the time. But basically, it's a rotation of employees. And there's a nine-to-five schedule. And, you know, the elephants are just, they're there. They're, they're the product. But in, in, in a privately owned situation with elephants, it's not nine-to-five. You know, it's nearly 24 hours a day. Like, even with me, I go out at 10 o'clock, and I go out and I feed Bo, and I spend some time just in his presence and let him know I'm here because they're family-oriented animals. They're group-oriented. So I think that it's it's a matter of that not it's not that zoos are bad. It's that zoos are not set up to um, provide for elephants in a way that elephants relate to and remain healthy. Yeah, no, it's just I've, I just find it so interesting and, and I guess mildly surprising just because circuses from the lowest one one or two animal things on up to think thankfully as you noted Ringley no longer exists in that realm. But just the travel alone and how they travel and the long hours and uh, generally, I think most people would say that they're cooped up, they're often standing in their own ways. I mean, just, just going from one show to the next as opposed to, say, a zoo situation where you say the caregivers are kind of transient but not the animals so much. It's just interesting that that, that has seemed more dramatically difficult for those animals that you have rescued? Yeah, well, um, I think when you look at the nature of an elephant, so, you know, I think that's what we should always go back to when we were trying to assess welfare is uh, elephants are migratory. Yeah. And so they naturally walk 30 to 50 miles every day. In that process of walking continually, there is numerous, innumerable um, stimuli that they experience every minute, every hour, smell, scent, other animals. They rub up against a tree. There's a new branch. There's this, that. There is, they are, they have evolved to be moving and experiencing a high level of continual stimuli. All right. So that's the negative side of zoo is they are not moving anywhere and they are experiencing the same stimuli, you know, or no stimuli, which is why zoos have recognized in the last couple of decades that uh, behavioral enrichment is part of their programs, that they have to create artificial stimuli for the elephants because it's unhealthy to be in an unstimulated environment. So then you take the artificial stimulation of an elephant traveling with a circuit, okay? It's artificial. It's not It's not a good solution, okay? But what people gravitate towards is, oh, they're standing in their own ways. Oh, they're traveling for long hours. Oh, they're doing those shows. Okay, I'm not, they're not, that's not, nothing about that is, is um, what we want for elephant, okay? But is anything about that beneficial for a captive elephant 
that has either that choice or standing in a void environment. Okay, so they're traveling, they're getting different stimuli. Hopefully they're with other elephants and most of the time that they, they are, but some are not. Okay. If they have a kind person caring for them, then they feel secure. Their person is traveling the same amount of hours that they are. Right? When I traveled with my elephant, she wasn't standing in manure. No, I stopped every three or four hours and cleaned out her trailer. I also stopped twice a day to let her go run in the woods and play. So it really depends on who is transporting the elephant. Is it the owner who cares? Is it someone who the elephant is leased to? Mm, how much do they care? Or is it a corporate thing where the owner has no idea who's taking care of the elephants or what's going on? Which was the example with Ringling. It just was so corporate yeah. that the elephants were just another thing. So, that, I mean, I just, I, I refuse to label uh, an industry and, and criticize the entire industry, I think the individual within that industry should be evaluated and, and you know, judged accordingly. Well, I'll grant you that. We're just about at the end of our time. I'm just going to su- suggest, though, that, again, probably in contrast to, I think, most people's view and experiences of zoo animals, that circus animals have much harder life. Let's say even the travel thing is, is a plus, as you say, in some ways, minus, I think, from other standpoints. But the thing is, there's still the book bill hooks, the training by dominance, the things that I think happen in probably much larger measure than most uh, zoo uh, elephants would, would typically experience. So just on that level alone, it seems like a tough, tough road. Literally. That is exactly the the main part of elephants in captivity that are on exhibit or doing shows that is 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 the most detrimental and that is dominance. Yeah. Dominance based management. So that is that is the one thing and, and if that's what they're doing in a circus, if they're actually dominating the elephant, that's a negative thing. Yeah. Well, so far I, I'm not sure how how much they do performing or get trained to perform without that kind of dominance. But uh anyway, we have kind of reached the end of our time. So we've been speaking with Carol Buckley. The website I want to hasten to add is elephantaidinternational.org, where there's all kinds of information about her work in Asia, but also about the new uh, refuge and including a uh, elephant cam where you can kind of check out Bo and uh, a lot of his day hanging out and uh, grazing and sometimes playing with a nice blue ball and all kinds of things. It sounds like there'll be other elephants there that we can catch on the camera over time. So, Carol, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. In a moment, I'll speak with Julie Inman about Barktoberfest, the very dog-friendly event, and people-friendly event for that matter, taking place in Safety Harbor this Saturday, October 23rd. Right now, though, let's step into the comedy corner with a nod of sorts to acknowledging that our former president seems far more visible lately, dot, dot, dot. Which brings me to this John Mulaney piece. There's a horse in the hospital in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. I've never really cared about politics. I've never talked about it much. But then, last November, the strangest thing happened. Now, I don't know if you've been following the news, but I've been keeping my ears open, and it seems like everyone everywhere is super mad about everything all the time. I try to stay a little optimistic, even though I will admit things are getting pretty sticky. Here's how I try to look at it. And this is just me. This guy being the president, it's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. It's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. I think eventually everything's going to be okay, but I have no idea what's going to happen next. And neither do
do any of you, and neither do your parents, because there's a horse loose in the hospital. It's never happened before. No one knows what the horse is gonna do next, least of all the horse. He's never been in a hospital before. He's as confused as you are. There's no experts. They try to find experts on the news. They're like, we're joined now by a man that once saw a bird in the airport. It's like, get out of here with that sh We've all seen a bird in the airport. This is a horse loose in a hospital. When a horse is loose in a hospital, you gotta stay updated. So all day long, you walk around, oh, what'd the horse do, what'd the horse do? The updates, they're not always bad. Sometimes they're just odd. Be like, the horse used the elevator. <laughs> I didn't know he knew how to do that. That was John Mulaney in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called There's a Horse in the Hospital. Taken from his album and Netflix special, Kid Gorgeous, at Radio City. Now it's time to speak with Julie Inman about Barktoberfest happening in Safety Harbor this Saturday, October 23rd. Here's Julie Inman on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty of uh, Barktoberfest, tell me a little bit about its history. When did you guys first present Barktoberfest, and what spurred it? Um, we started it a few years before COVID. Um, and <laughs> Every, everything's found... marked by COVID, for, for right, better or worse, isn't it? before COVID or after yeah, COVID. That's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, we, we found a lot of animals, a lot of dogs, at our regular special event, um, and we realized that people really enjoy bringing their animals out to the outdoor special events. And some of our events, it works great. And some of our events, it was difficult. So we decided to create a few events um, and just designate them for, for our canine friends and our family. So we started Barktoberfest. Um, we've had a couple of different uh, dog events. Some were like Doggy Day by the Bay. Um, this one, you know, being October, we went with the Barktoberfest theme. Oh, so, yeah. That's so. cool. So I saw it described online as a festival for dogs and their people. Can you kind of elaborate Festival sounds pretty uh, multifaceted, like there's a lot of cool things going on. So we'll bring in vendors and things, and we really want to promote our dog park, which is located at Safety Harbor City Park. Um, we want to just promote the fact that we have dog parks and areas for our canine friends. Yeah. Um, in Safety Harbor. It's kind of in the back of our park behind our baseball field, so I don't feel it gets enough attention. Okay. But it does have a separate area for large dogs and small dogs. So we'll have vendors, and then we'll do uh, costume contests and just dog fun games and things. Cool. Um, yeah. So let's uh, review the, the key details beyond that one. So it's this Saturday, October 23rd, yep. and I believe it runs from 10 a.m. to noon. Yep, 10 a.m. to noon. And it's, and uh, oh, go ahead. At Safety Harbor City Park Dog Park. Okay. And is there uh, any kind of address or something just for people who may not be as familiar with it as they should be yep. to, to locate it? So it's 1200 Railroad Avenue. Okay. Um, but the easier way is it, it's across from our Safety Harbor Community Center. Ah, okay. 659th Avenue South. It's right where our baseball fields are. If you find the baseball fields, you're in the right place. Yeah, it's behind the baseball park from what I've heard recently. Yes. Yes, that's great. So, uh, and since you mentioned COVID, uh, again, everything is marked post or pre-COVID. Is there COVID protocols that people should be aware of for the... Um, Barktoberfest? No, because we're running the event outside. Okay. Uh, with our outdoor environment, we're able to just run it as a normal special event. Uh, okay. Because we have clean air. 
that's great. Okay, great. So no uh, vaccination no cards or... No okay. Nope, okay, cool. And how many dogs and or people do you expect based on the past years that you've done this? You know, it's really hard to judge. Um, normally, I would say like 100 people plus. Um, it's really hard to judge after our numbers have been all over the place. Yeah. We've really experienced the unexpected um, since, since we've opened back up. All of our programs are, are not doing anything that they normally did. Okay. So, so it's totally unpredictable, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I really don't. I can't put a good number on it this year. And I guess for people who are listening and, and maybe either driving around or just want to double check some details, they can go to safetyharborrecreation.com, I believe, yes. for info. Yep. And I think there's even a phone number, 277-724-1545, if you want to. Yeah, go that we, route. We also have another little dog area um, at North City Park located up there as well where we run, we run all of our dog training and dog obedience classes out of. Wow, So cool. if people are looking for more options, there are a couple places to take your dog safely in Safety Harbor. Well, this sounds like it's going to be a blast. I look forward to Julie. Thanks for joining us today on Talking Animals. I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals. Scott Elliott is up next. I see him preparing for another grand, glorious show of three hours, so stay tuned for that. It's coming up on WMNF Tampa momentarily. Uh, next Wednesday, my guest will be Colleen Ellis, an expert on pet loss and dealing with that type of grief. She's an author and consultant who speaks at veterinary conferences and other major gatherings where pet bereavement is a significant topic. So I think various degrees we could all be sort of helped by that sort of information and guidance. So we'll be back next Wednesday at 11 a.m. on Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for Scott Elliott at the NPR News Headlines.